Lesson this morning, Mark chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. As Jesus left the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what awesome stones and buildings. Jesus responded, Do you see these enormous buildings? Not even one stone will be left upon another. All will be demolished. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? What sign will show that all these things are about to come to an end? Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. Many people will come in my name saying, I'm the one. They will deceive many people. When you hear of wars and reports of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must happen. But this isn't the end yet. Nations and kingdoms will fight against each other. And there will be earthquakes and famines in all sorts of places. These things are just the beginning of the sufferings associated with the end. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Thank you, Inspirations. That last line, did you all hear that? For it is giving in giving that we receive. It's in pardoning that we are pardoned. It's in dying we are born to eternal life. seems counter to kind of how our culture goes <laughs> counter to maybe our nature or at least mine seems bizarre that it is in dying that we would gain life I've always found those kind of scriptures interesting and hard to how do you how, how are you able to predict that where do we get if we're in die, if dying we're born to eternal life seems too unpredictable too uncertain to deal with that a lot of the time on uh, on Thursday, I got an alert on my computer that ESPN was already looking to to begin its NCAA men's basketball March Madness bracket discussion. Um, predictions like Gonzaga uh, going to be easy. Michigan, Texas, Syracuse, St. John's. I don't have to tell some of you that. Uh, and as I started going into this spiral of March Madness, I caught myself. Because it's November, and I don't need to occupy my headspace with any more March Madness excitement than is already there. I mean, why are we trying to do that before Christmas? I feel like it's the same reason we try to predict who's going to win the NCAA football trophy in August or the World Series winners in April. We live in a world constantly seeking to predict what's going to happen. We're constantly trying to figure it out. We have professionals paid to predict, paid to answer the questions we want answered. Meteorologists tell us what the forecast is tomorrow. Sportscasters tell us the probability of the Braves winning the World Series or Astros banging on a trash can. We have whole political channels set up to tell us exactly what they think is going to happen. And sometimes if it doesn't happen the way they think it's going to happen, they'll figure out a way to, to work around that. We have church signs in most areas of the U.S. with clever little phrases that tell us while there is uncertainty out there, there's certainty in here. <laughs> Perhaps that's what our obsession with prediction is all about. We've got to be certain. We need it. My favorite, one of my favorite theologians, Peter Enns, wrote a book five years ago called The Sin of Certainty. And in it, he talks about the need for stability and safety 
and certainty in our lives, the need to predict and know what tomorrow will look like. But often, he says, there are little moments, tiny, ordinary, common occurrences that strip us of certainty, that remind us of the unpredictability of life. And these moments, he says, they work unexpectedly to, to snatch me from my safe, familiar, and unexamined neighborhood and plop me down somewhere I never thought I'd land. I had Chick-fil-A with uh, Alan Bell a couple weeks ago, and he said what Peter Enns said, but he put it like this. In all my experience, I've come to understand that nothing ever happens or goes the way you think. And if we're honest with ourselves, we love predictability. I love it. The possibility of certainty. Because honestly, it's a heck of a lot easier to maintain a fragile and false sense of control than it is to trust God. It just is. We love prediction. We love feeling certain. Even in the years Jesus walked the earth, the Romans did the same thing. Here's a bunch of gods, pray to them, sacrifice to them, and sway them so that the future becomes more predictable. If you give this or that to that God, you'll get your wish. And that's the context, the world, that the disciples and Jesus find themselves in. Mark 13, Jesus is leaving the temple and he's walking out. His disciples are with him, walking from one court to another in this huge place, masses of people. And the temple is over the skyline. As they're leaving, they can see it behind them. It's beautiful. And one of the disciples says on their way out, Rabbi, look at the temple. Look at that man-made piece of art. Look at the stonework. Look at the building, at the sculpture, at the sheer magnitude. It's amazing. It truly is beautiful. Now, Jesus has been engaged in conversation all day, in discussion after discussion, question after question, surrounding the issue of seeming religious versus loving God and being a citizen of earth versus a citizen of heaven. He just answered a question about the most important commandment, love God and love people. And he just told a bunch of people that a woman who gives out of her hopeless poverty has given everything. And that is the best sacrifice. That's the greater sacrifice. Not majesty and money, not long prayers or religious elitism, not huge buildings and adoration. And so Jesus, I assume, is exhausted. (laughs) It's getting late. And after all that, a disciple says, would you look at that beautiful religious monument? We did a great job, didn't we? And what does Jesus do? He kind of snaps. I mean, that's how I read it. And one thing I'm learning, FYI, about marriage, through marriage, at least I'm told, is that I'm probably not my best at certain parts of the day. And usually towards the end when I've been having conversations and, and talking and been working and get home, I'm pretty tired and I likely shouldn't be approached with anything that important. I heard from somebody on a Zoom call a couple weeks ago about something completely different. He said, oh, well, me and my wife do something called halt. <laughs> In other words, if I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, let's talk about it later. <laughs> it's just not going to be a good time. Now, I'm not telling you that Jesus is hangry and needs to not have another conversation right now. But I do recognize that Jesus is human. And he probably had some moments like that, moments where he just got done explaining why our religious buildings and monuments and robes and rituals can get a little ridiculous and can sometimes make us miss the point. And so I imagine Jesus gives the disciple who raises the observation a healthy amount of side eye and says, those buildings, 
Yeah, they're great, aren't they? I love good architecture. Did you know that all of that is going to be destroyed? Did you know that everything is coming down? Not one stone is going to be left out of the destruction. That'll silence it. So they leave and they keep walking. And a little later, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, admiring the architecture once more. And a few of them, no doubt, they've been whispering and thinking about what Jesus said since. And they asked Jesus kind of gently, hey, about what you said earlier, I'm not trying to get on your nerves, not trying to make anybody upset, but can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like when is destruction going to happen? Is there going to be like a sign or a kind of heads up that things are about to get rough? We're just, just curious. They want a prediction, don't they? They got to know when. They need a little bit of certainty. So Jesus looks back at them. You guys, I'm going to say this. A lot of stuff is going to happen. Some people are going to come along and say they've been given a word from God. They're, they're the one. I've got a special message. And you'll hear from time to time wars or even the rumor of wars. The point is there will be fights and battles and violence. But don't lose your head. Don't panic. Good decisions are tough to make in the midst of anxiety and panic. Remember, halt. War and violence seem to be the way of history, the way of the world. War is not the sign of the end. Nation will fight nation, ruler against ruler, the president against that president. The, there will be natural disasters, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, famine, food shortage, lack of water, that kind of thing. <laughs> I can just picture Jesus' friends sitting around and thinking to themselves, I just want a timeline. That's all I really want. You don't have to go into everything. But the point isn't the timeline. The point is suffering. It's inevitable. It's part of the unfolding redemption of the world. It's going to get worse before it gets better. In the end, it'll, be, it'll all be okay. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. Suffering is going to take place. And Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you when it'll happen, but I will tell you it's going to happen. The whole section of Mark 13 is known as Jesus' prediction regarding the Jewish war with Rome. Now that war took place 66 to 73 AD in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was huge. I've been there. I've been underneath the temple. The blocks of the foundation are ginormous. 40 feet long, 400 tons. It's incredible. I've gone under the tunnels to see the sheer size, uh, which said to me, whoever built this wanted everybody else to know how much bigger their their God was than than any other, and there was a minority of Jewish people at the time who denounced the temple. It's straight away from its pure intent, they said, and judgment's going to come down upon the temple. So Jesus wasn't the first to predict it. There were some predictors about the temple coming down, and in prophets and other contemporaries. But most of the people probably just saw the temple as invincible. It was there before. It's always going to be there. But in the year 66... There was a revolt which started a war. Roman general Titus began to march around the towns and suburbs of the city and he pushed refugees into the heart of Jerusalem where the final battle occurred. The Jews inside the city were not necessarily of one mind which made it difficult. There was no leader. And in the spring of 70, the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem and in August of that year, Everything was on fire. The temple was destroyed. 
and this massive structure of unity and religion and hope was gone. Hope was gone. No more symbol of presence of God on earth. No more holy of holies. No more place of ritual or sacrifice. No more sense of place. No more hope. No more future. I heard it said one time that in a world without future, each moment is the end of the world. And I think that's a good articulation of what the Jewish folks go through with the destruction of this holy city. A moment when every thought of a future is called into question. Lives, families, businesses, economies, ways of life, marriages, and futures all find themselves without a tomorrow at the end of the world, or at least the end of their world. I imagine that some of us in here know that feeling, the feeling when the future is no longer certain, when expectations and hopes and dreams and todays and tomorrows and next years come crashing down, there is no more future. It is the end of the world, or at least it seems like the end of my world or your world. Perhaps that's the message of Jesus. We will experience that, that loss, that suffering, fights. Our earth will shake. Conflict will throw everything to the waves, tossing back and forth. We will suffer. We will experience moments when the future feels uncertain, when it feels like the end of the world. And in those moments, when it feels like all might be lost, when destruction has taken our sense of place or our identity or certainty when it feels like the end of the world, it always does me good to know that at the end of Mark, just a few chapters later, a stone gets rolled away and a voice says, do not be afraid. You're looking for Jesus who suffered and died. He is not here. He is risen. Turns out the end is not the end. Turns out the end of the world isn't the end of the world after all, because even if death comes, new life comes shortly after. I've got one example, and then I'm through. In 1985, a man named Roddy Edmonds passed away. He was born in 1919 in Knoxville, Tennessee. He attended a Methodist church, and he would enlist in 1941 and was a part of the 422nd Regiment of the 106th Infantry Division. In December 1944, he landed in France and traveled to eastern Belgium near the German border on December 16th. He was attacked with his fellow soldiers in the Battle of the Bulge. Edmund's regiment held out for a while and then they surrendered. They were then forced to march miles and miles and loaded into cars with no food or water. Edmonds group, a group of NCOs, were then shipped to a POW camp. And of the 1,275 men that had been taken prisoner that were with him, Edmonds was the highest rank. In January 1945, at Edmonds camp, the German soldiers announced that all Jewish POWs would need to report the following morning. And everybody knew what that meant. But none of the German officers could have predicted what might happen next. That morning, Edmonds ordered his fellow prisoners, Jews and non-Jews, to line up. Everybody. 1,275. And the officer approached and saw every prisoner lined up in front of the, where they were. He said to Edmonds, they cannot all be Jews. 
And Edmonds responded, we are all Jews here. Even with a pistol to his head, he did not waver. And the German officer would back down, preventing over 200 Jewish soldiers from being singled out and possible death. <laughs> he never really talked about this story. Actually, they didn't know until after his death in 1985, his sons were looking through his diary and they found the story, parts of it. They started calling around to other soldiers that his dad had been with. They said, yeah, your dad saved my life. And on February 10th, 2015, 30 years after his death, Roddy Edmonds was recognized as a righteous among the nations, Israel's highest award for non-Jews who risked their lives to save Jews during World War II. For his defense of Jewish servicemen at the POW camp for standing up and for saying, we are all Jews here. In the presence of death and destruction, when suffering was constant and never-ending, when the end of the world for many was in sight, life and grace and goodness and justice and Jesus found their way into a POW camp. We are all Jews here. There will be suffering, death, destruction. But even so, after the fire is out, after the stone is rolled in front of the tomb, a green shoot will sprout from the stump. Redemption will stand up. Resurrection will take its place. Suffering will be no more from the winter. <laughs> for Jesus is before all things. All things have been created through him and for him. And in him all things hold together. If you are at the end of your world this morning, if there is a path of destruction and desolation winding its way, through your life, if you're in the midst of darkness, in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, I want to tell you this morning that you are not far from grace. For even though it be a cross that raiseth me, still my song shall be, nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. Let us pray. Yeah, this morning I'm thankful for examples of grace for examples of life that spring up from death. I'm thankful all to show us that we are loved and that this is not the end. May we know that we are never far from grace. In Jesus' name, amen.